Welcome to the Barfly Podcast Season 5. My name is Jeff Burkhardt, Barfly columnist for the Bay Area News Group and author of the books 20 Years Behind Bars, The Spirit of the Adventures of a Real Bartender, and its sequel, Pearl Denied. My co-host and barback is Kevin Zong, editor of The Grin Dish. Sit back and relax as we attempt to pull back the curtain on the hospitality industry. And feel free to pour yourself a beverage. I know Kevin and I will. For Season 5, we wanted to do something special. So we've invited special guest Jerry Pompilli, who in the early 1970s was Bill Graham's right-hand man, managing both the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West, as well as Winterland. While at Winterland, in between two Rolling Stones shows, he attended a party at the Trident Restaurant in Sausalito. At that party, Mick Jagger was served a tequila sunrise by bartender Bobby Lozoff. Mick developed an affinity for the drink, took it on tour, and made it world famous. Later this month, the Marin History Museum, along with the Trident, is unveiling a historical marker to commemorate that event. I'm happy to be a part of that, as I was the person who wrote the original story for National Geographic Assignment, detailing that party at the Trident. So glad to have you here, Jerry. But before we get started, didn't you get started as a cook in a restaurant in New York? And what was your specialty there? Omelets, 50 different kinds. We open at six at night. And we close at 6 in the morning. Of course, for the <laughs> okay. first few months, we sat there empty until the bars closed. Right. Right? And then, boom. And this guy showed us how to do a French-style layered omelet, which happened to be in the joy of cooking. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's in there. And so, that was it. And it was like a big fucking hit, this built-up layered thing, you know. I mean, you can get them now almost anywhere that right. way, but then you couldn't. All the bars in that West Village area did brunches. So they would hire me. I worked at the Bleecker Street. I worked at Osher's. I ended up making, I think it was 200 bucks a weekend for working four hours on Saturday and four hours on Sunday. Which back then was probably a fortune. It was 1967. Yeah, it was good money. (laughs) And I left it all to get to get into showbiz. <laughs> you were Bill Graham's associate, so you, you managed yeah. Winterland and you managed the Fillmore's. I managed Winterland, I did it. I was the house manager to Fillmore East. I was only at the Fillmore West for one year when it was at the Carousel in 1970. Because then I went to Europe and I worked with the Stones in 71. Then I came back and ran Winterland in the 70s and booked and ran shows at the Berkeley Community Theater, which reminded me of the Fillmore East because it had seats. <laughs> Right. Well, you're the guy who introduces Peter Frampton on Frampton. Yeah, I do the Frampton thing. And the weird thing about that was DeAnthony, Frampton's manager, asked Bill to overdub the intro so we would have Bill Graham on the record. Instead of you? Instead of me, and Bill said no. Oh, really? I mean, you were his right-hand man, right? I mean, you were... Well, yeah. But remember, Bill was (laughs) left-handed. I have it in writing that I'm his right-handed. That's ironically, right? Deliberately ironically. The other thing is, I mean, you organized that uh, that Rolling Stones part because you spent the previous year with, with the, the Rolling Stones with the Rolling in the Stone south of France. In, the south, in England on their 71 English tour. After the tour, we did the farewell party, which was another shit show. And then I ran off to Spain. Stopping in Amsterdam, there were some people from Marin County. I have no idea what their name were. One person that you might know that was in Amsterdam at the time was Reese Stiles. Remember Reese? Yeah. From the Trident. Yeah. And uh, she was living on a houseboat. And you know who was crashing on a houseboat? Terrence Allen. Yeah. He was trying to 
kick his heroin habit, which I don't know if Amsterdam is the place to say. Bless him for trying, right? Yeah, whatever. But he ended up getting over it, you know. I went down to Spain for two weeks, and I came back and got to Amsterdam. I had this VW van. Checked in with the Marin people. There were any messages, there was one. Joe Bergman, in the Stones office, saying... Get down here! I had been an hour away from them on my run back from Spain. And I got in van and went back. So you end up with the Stones in the south of France while they're right. recording Exile on Main Street. I wasn't, you know, hanging out. Right. I was working. Basically, they had rented the, the bottom half of this villa in Cannes, the Villa Eden, to use as an office. But when they went to have phones put in, the, at that time in France... The average wait for a phone line was like seven years or something. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe set an office up in the in a hotel, and I lived in the in, in the villa. It had a couple of bed, two or three bedrooms and stuff. And and if they had extra people, they would crash with me. That's how I met Bob Greenfield. Okay. Because after he did the Keith Richards interview, right. he spent a week or two with me transcribing it, and we became friends then. Well, the Stones really is crazy. As When I interviewed Bobby for the original uh, Trident to Kill Sunrise story, he said they were pretty discreet and not all that crazy. That they were, No, know. I didn't think they were crazy. What I did, for the most part, was visit everyone once or twice a week, bring cash, take their receipts, and give them cash for their receipts. So I saw Keith twice a week. I saw Mick twice a week. Of course, there was the wedding, which was a whole other shit show. Right. Wait, who got married? I'm sorry. Mick got married. Oh, oh, it was for... Oh, okay. Yeah. Mick Jagger. Oh, yeah. I heard <laughs> that was your connection to the Rolling Stones. So yeah. when, when they came to do their tour in 72, which was a big deal because they hadn't been here since Altamont, especially in the Bay Area because, right. I mean, Altamont was a, a big deal. Yeah, we did a bunch of shows with them. We did not only here, we did L.A., we did Phoenix and San Diego. The last time I had been in 69, right, and uh, they had played the Oakland Coliseum indoors. I never saw them do more than smoke joints, mm-hmm. all right? Anything else they did, Keith did his hard drugs, and she did it up in his bedroom. And, like, no one ever went upstairs in that house. They decided they were going to record down there. I suggested doing it in Keith's basement. First thing, everyone said, no, 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 no. It wasn't the perfect thing, but... Well, on hindsight, maybe it was. I was only down there one time. I I get bored. Unless you're doing something, you know, it's like boring. As a matter of fact, when I first worked for them doing the English tour in 71, one of my jobs was they couldn't release Sticky Fingers because four of the songs hadn't been copywritten. So I had to go over to Mick's apartment in Cheney Walk in, in Chelsea and drop a needle on an acetate and trying to figure out what the fuck he was saying on four songs. Bitch, Brown Sugar, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, and Moonlight Mile. Moonlight Mile was easy. Mm-hmm. But the others are... What does he say? Yeah. I got about <laughs> half of it, and then he filled in the rest. You know? Oh, that's funny. One of the reasons I was excited about having you on here is we're doing this event at the, at the Trident at the end of right. the month. And you put together this party at the Trident where ultimately... I didn't put it together. I don't remember much about the party. I just remember the advanced stuff. Because that was what I had to do. And then it was party time. The thing was, you know, when I heard them pulling up, you know, I was waiting for them. And I know how they are, you know. It's like, and I know how it is when you walk into a room and everyone's expecting you and they're all like standing there gawking. You never know what they're going to do in those kind of cases. Usually it just kind of bums them out. So what I did was I just got everyone working at the Trident to start moving shit around. You know, taking salt and pepper shakers and moving them from one side of the room to the other. Right. So they had brought in some people to work, Bobby being one of them. Yeah, Bobby uh, was there working. Right. I don't know who else was working. I talked to uh, Marcia 
called Inez, the yeah. mother of Bill's youngest son, right. Alex. She remembers being at the party in her pajamas. I don't know. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure. And uh, great friend, chef. Uh, I think his name was Pierre. And I knew him because he was a friend of Rene Verdun. You know who Rene yeah. Verdun was? Of course, yeah. Rene and Yvette Verdun were good friends of mine. And it was just a great party, you know, from, from what I remember, like I said. So what exactly happened, though? Did Mick want a, a margarita? I don't, I don't know. You have to ask Bobby that. I was, <laughs> I was probably sitting with one of the waitresses, you know. Yeah. Who knew it would be a moment in history, right? Yeah, it was a party, like, you know. Um, I've been to been to parties with bands before you know and right. it's like there's an interesting scene in the movie almost famous where they go to a party at someone's house people don't realize how important that is to a band on the road because when you go to these big setup invite parties no one can relax i noticed this one time i was with eddie money we were out on the road we were going from philadelphia up to boston we were coming up highway 17 in new jersey half a mile from my mother's house I called him and they said, hey, we're going to stop over. You got anything? Yeah, yeah, I got some pasta. You know, we stop over. Everyone comes in the house. They're all sitting in the living room. I go into the living room and everyone is asleep. They all just passed out Mm -hmm. because it was the first time they had been in a home in months and they could actually relax, you know. You can't relax otherwise. So after that, anytime someone wanted to throw us a party, I said, whose house is it at? They said, I said, we're not going to a party unless it's at someone's house. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Tell us something about Bill Graham that maybe people wouldn't know. He's a good actor. He used to do this thing where the secretary would tell him he had a call from someone. And here's his phone. And he knew who was on the other line. And as he picked up the phone, he would, and then you do fuck, fuck yourself, you know. Yeah. You know, and the other person was totally off guard. Bill right. was totally in control of the conversation. Whatever. Great guy, by right. the way. I mean, you know, it's like, he's like a father figure to me. Yeah, look where he came from, you know, and what he went through as a kid. Yeah. You look at concerts nowadays where they're bigger and they're better money-making, but they're not having the kind of impact culturally, I would say, that some of those, even those smaller shows at the Fillmore or wherever had. I don't know. Maybe I'll, but I can't be a judge of that. I mean, I I don't hear it, so how can I judge it? I couldn't hear it when I turned 40, for Christ's sake. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's the music that shapes your life comes when you're young. When I was in the management end of, of BGP with, you know, signing acts and stuff. I found Eddie Money and, and Paul Collins to beat. I got to a point where I'd get tapes of bands and my neighbor who lived across the street had a teenage daughter and I'd get her and her girlfriends to listen to the tapes with me and tell me what they thought. What the hell do I know? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah. Huh? You think that still happens? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. But how I mean, do you think the, the Bay Area scene has changed since uh, you were promoting shows? I mean, it's a different scene, right? Well, first of all, in order to grow art, especially in music art, I, I'm a great believer in the fact that you need shitholes where kids can go and play. And there used to be great shitholes around here. The Lion's Share, the Long Brand, you know, places like that. And uh, there aren't... The only place left right now is 924 Gilman. That's the only shithole left. And it's kind of a nice shit. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. you know. Well, struggling artists need to struggle, right? Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Oh, Dave Grohl, yeah. you know, said it, you know. Get down in your fucking garage or basement and start playing. You're going to suck and keep playing till you suck less. You know? right. <laughs> That's right. what you got to do. Yeah. People used to ask me, how do I make it? I said, keep from playing. Right. Try and play in the same place as long as you can. And if you're any good, they'll start lining up outside the door. Then you'll know. One four-letter word describes making it. It's called luck. 
All right, one more story about Bill Graham or the Trident. And it's the Chuck Berry story, and it's in the Bill Graham book. I forget who he was playing with at the Fillmore East one night, and I'm approached in the lobby by this man and this woman. The woman was Ellen Sander, the writer. Right. Who wrote Trips. Right. And uh, Alan Strahl, who was Chuck's agent at the time. They come up to me and they tell we got to meet with Chuck Berry. He's expecting us. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking, I never go backstage, but... Chuck Berry. You know? right. I've been listening yeah. to him for sure. 10 years. I would really like to meet Chuck Berry. Right. You know? So I said, come on, I'll take you. <laughs> so we go backstage. And we, we lead the way up to the third floor. We knock on the door. Chuck says, come on in. We open the door. And Chuck's sitting in a chair with a sandwich, eating a sandwich. And this little blonde head is bobbing up and down. <laughs> and Jesus, you're the blah. And Chuck goes, it's okay. I'll be done with the sandwich in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. That's what he said. And we just backed away, you know. Okay, so the Trident story. <laughs> yeah. So back in the 70s when I was running in Winterland, you know, it was a big cash thing, right. you know. It wasn't until mid-70s that we even started doing Ticketron, you know. Right. And still most people bought their tickets at the door. In so, cash. In you cash. Didn't yeah. credit cards. We didn't take credit cards. So every weekend there was forty to fifty dollars to $60,000 in small bills in cash. And me being the New Yorker that I am... I never did the same thing twice every weekend, you know. I either just left the cash in the safe, came back a day, maybe two, three days later, picked it up to take it to the bank, did a night drop that night, you know, or uh, took it home. Right. And brought it into the office, you know, the next day and gave it to the girls in accounting and they counted it all. It's weird when you have that much money, you know, no matter how many times you count it, it never comes out the same. <laughs> it's really weird. So anyway, one night... When I got 40 or 50 grand in my back pocket, and I think a 45 in the back of my pants, I mean, you know, I got $50,000, right? Right. And that's in 60s money. 70s money. Well, 70s money, yes, that's, a, yeah. that's two times that, three anyway, times Anyway, I stop in on the way home. I stop in to try for a drink. I did that. And I knew Bobby. And uh, I walk in the door, and at that first table after you come in are three Hells Angels. And they turn around, and they see me. And I see them, and they stand up, and Bobby comes out from behind the bar. He goes, <laughs> okay, <laughs> nothing to do here, let's all calm down. And That's Bobby. I would go and spend uh, every January with him in Maui. Yeah, after he moved to Maui, I'd spend his little house in Lahaina with him and Odin, his dog. Yeah. Well, that's a great story with Bobby and the, the, the whole uh, Sunrise. And fun to be part of that, and it's going to be great. I wish I knew more about the party. I just don't remember it. It's like shows. I, I don't watch shows. It's not what I do. Right, because you know? you're working. I'm working. Yeah. Well, I always say that at my job, same thing. People are there to have a good time. I'm there to work. It's a different yeah, dynamic. Right. I mean, I used to walk around, and I would look at people that were working for me, you know. And if they were watching the band, they weren't doing their job. Right. They're supposed to be watching the audience. Right. Mm -hmm. They're there to take care of the audience. Those shows back then were kind of a lot more intimate, I think. It was brand new because security was a new idea. How do you well, manage it wasn't that? You see, I didn't think of it as security, you know. When I first came out here, uh, Bill had, you know, uh, rent-a-cops doing stuff like that. And I changed that. In-house security? Yeah, well, what they call peer pressure. But I didn't look at them as security. The only time people were security is when shit hit the fan. Then everyone became security, right. including the girls at the canning house. You know, it was the Fillmore East staff that provided the only security at Woodstock. I the know. sheriffs walked off that they had hired. And all the Fillmore East kids wanted to go up there. And I didn't go because I had left 
I had been on the staff and I had uh, resigned a month earlier when they changed sites because they had been working on the original site in Wallkill for months and it wasn't ready and there was no fucking way they were going to get it ready right. in one month at, uh, you know, Asger's farm. So I said, I can't, I'm the house manager to Phil Maurice. I'm too high profile. I can't be associated with it. I mean, Bill was there, but he was there as the manager of Santana. Right. Mm-hmm. The sheriffs walked off. The Phil Maurice kids were the only one providing security for the whole stage area. They didn't sleep for three days. <laughs> yeah. The only time they saw the hotel, the motel room was when they dropped their shit off. And when it was all done, John Morris, the director, put them all together, thanked them for the great job they did, and told me they didn't have enough money to pay them. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. And when they got back to New York and told me, I went up to the Woodstock office, and by reasoning with everyone, I got their money. So don't worry about tomorrow. Please join us next time as we welcome Daedalus Howell, the editor of the Pacific Sun, the Bohemian, and the East Bay Express. My name is Jeff Burkhart. Thanks for listening. <laughs>